Have you ever had moments when time seemed to slow down? I imagine many of us have been experiencing slowness of time with this quarantine. Or maybe you wanted time to slow down, but it went by in a flash. Maybe a vacation in a warm, pleasant place. Maybe a weekend visit with loved ones. Perhaps only in retrospect do you realize how precious those moments were. No doubt the disciples felt this way about their last evening with Jesus, their last supper. The disciples had been with Jesus for about two and a half years. They had clocked many dusty miles on their sandals. They had had many unusual encounters, witnessed many spectacles, but the story is nearing its climax. Here at this juncture in time, the gospel writers slow down zooming in to give us more detail. We get a close-up of the face of Jesus as he shares his last meal with the disciples. We get a close-up of Peter as he swears he will not deny Jesus. We even get a close-up of Pontius Pilate as he debates whether to release Jesus. The exact moment in which we find ourselves this evening is the Last Supper, the final intimate moments that Jesus has with his inner circle, a moment which he says in verse 15 of our reading that he had earnestly desired for some time. And in our, our gospel passage, Luke 22, 14 to 30, we see two immediate concerns. First, a celebration of the Passover meal, which becomes the Eucharist, and then seemingly unrelated at first glance, a reminder about what constitutes true greatness. So because we'll be doing foot washing this evening, I would like to lead you in a reflection on the second part of the passage, the gospel passage, especially verses 24 to 27. And I'll read those again. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So I'd like to structure our reflection on this passage with three movements. First, the strange yet typical dispute of the disciples. Second, the strange yet typical rule of kings. And third, the strange yet prototypical service of Jesus. So let's look first at the strange yet typical dispute of the disciples. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Why is this dispute strange? The preceding verses describe one of the most poignant moments in all the Gospels. Jesus has his last meal with the disciples and reveals himself as the fulfillment of the Passover meal. The broken bread is his body given for them. The poured out cup is his shed blood. This is sacrificial language, and surely the disciples would have comprehended it on some level, right? And yet, incredibly, 
This moment of inexpressible beauty is followed by bickering. These are Jesus' last moments with the disciples. How could they be so short-sighted? There is some debate as to why this dispute comes up after the meal, and Luke is the only gospel writer to record this dispute at this particular moment. Perhaps it happens because Jesus mentions that there is a traitor in their midst, in verse 22, and then there's questioning that follows. It's not me, is it you? Sort of accusations. And some commentators see an irony in this debate about greatness, that like Judas, the disciples also are betraying Christ, betraying the teachings of Christ with their obsession with status. So why is this dispute typical? It's strange, but it's also typical because it's not the first time that it comes up in Luke's gospel. The disciples have argued about this at least one time before. In fact, right after Jesus foretells his death, in chapter 9. This also happens right after the transfiguration, and perhaps they were still dazed by the transfiguration. It is one of the wow moments of Luke's gospel. And in Luke 22, our reading for this evening, the debate is about greatness, and it's immediately after the Last Supper, but this is dissonant here. And yet at the same time, it's so human. How often have we ruined moments of great beauty and power through pettiness. It also illustrates how far the disciples are from what Jesus had taught them. The posture of our Lord is striking here. Even though death is knocking at his door, he is patient and uses this moment to teach something very important. So first we see the strange yet typical dispute of the disciples. This is followed by the strange yet typical rule of kings. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Why is this behavior strange? Well, this term that's translated into English as benefactors, uh, in Greek it's oi ergetai, is interesting. It literally means do-gooders, those who do good. And historians tell us that this designation in Greek or ergetai, or benefactor, was common coin in biblical times. It appears on all kinds of surviving monuments in what, is, what was the eastern half of the Roman Empire, where Greek was the primary language. In fact, Augustus Caesar uses it for himself as a designation benefactor. And so in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean, leaders enhanced their own status by casting themselves as benefactors, by selling the idea that their primary concern was the well-being of their subjects. Unfortunately, their primary concern in most cases was recognition and self-promotion. They may have provided some measure of protection and infrastructure, but it wasn't for free. And the subjects were expected to express gratitude and honor, as well as practice loyal service. This approach to leadership is not unique to the ancient world, of course. More recently, in 19th century America, tycoons like Andrew Carnegie, who became rich on the backs of impoverished immigrant workers, cast themselves as societal benefactors. And more recently, we have dot-com billionaires who also fashion themselves as benefactors, while they rake in more money than most developing nations. My point here is not to critique capitalism or government in general. Rather, I'm trying to illustrate what Jesus means by Gentile kings who are called benefactors, who call themselves benefactors. 
why is this behavior typical? All you have to do is crack open a history book, even an elementary school history book, to see that history is littered with self-serving sovereigns. Some are mild, some are very extreme, taking down thousands, even millions, as they pursue their ambitions. So we see the strange yet typical dispute of the disciples, followed by the strange yet typical rule of kings. And this is contrasted finally by the strange yet prototypical service of Jesus, verses 26 and 27. But not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus identifies the greatest in striking terms. He identifies the greatest as the youngest. This is well before the advent of youth culture, before Forever 21, before the evils of ageism. In those days, age was sage and youth was uncouth. Adolescent pranksters and sowers of wild oats were not condoned or tolerated. Wisdom was the product of experience. And the elders of any culture were exactly that, the elder or the older people. Now, I don't think that Jesus is promoting the ascendancy of youth culture here. Rather, he's saying that the kingdom, um, that in the kingdom, those who are deemed the lowest are, in fact, the greatest. In this passage, Jesus revises the script of what constitutes power and status. And we see this as far back as the Beatitudes, where he pronounces blessings on those who are of low status. This is a new paradigm where the least have true power. So for Jesus, the greatest is the youngest, but who are the leaders? Shockingly, these are the ones who serve. Jesus reminds his disciples about how honor works around the table in his time. And the fact is that the ones who reclined at the table were greater than those who served them. But then Jesus says something very powerful in verse 27. I am among you as the one who serves. In this atypical way of relating, Jesus becomes the prototype and prime exemplar of self-giving service. He is the model that we are to follow. He is the mold that shapes our new identity. So leadership in Jesus's community is not about status or honor. Instead, people are to adopt the attitude of table servants, those who occupy the bottom rung of society. And of course, servants were the ones who did the foot washing, not the people of status. So Jesus is calling us to be benefactors, but the kind of benefactors who are generous and self-giving, the kind who expect nothing in return, no quid pro quo. We live in a society that puts a high premium on customer service. We have the, the, the mantra, the customer is always right. Um, this is something that I came to appreciate firsthand while living in Bulgaria in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s, shortly after the fall of communism. At that time and place, the customer was almost certainly wrong. Um, I had a lot of experiences with that. Uh, at places like Costco, we have great customer service. In fact, uh, my family and I bought a pre-lit artificial Christmas tree there 
a long time ago. And then when the lights stopped working about five or six years later, we took the tree back and they gave us a brand new replacement. That is great customer service. But even Costco's customer service with their cheap hot dogs is not selfless. They also want to retain customers. They want to make money. Um, it's not true selfless service that Jesus is teaching in this passage. So on this evening of the Last Supper, we see the strange yet typical dispute of the disciples, followed by the strange yet typical rule of kings. And then this is contrasted by the strange yet prototypical service of Jesus. The disciples' poorly timed and silly debate about greatness might seem foreign to us today, yet it is human nature to compare, even if it's done in silence, even if it's done discreetly. We like to size people up and we like to cut people down to size. We jostle, we position, we put ourselves first. And especially in our consumerist culture, we become terribly self-enamored, self-centered, and self-indulgent. And even though we don't tend to argue about greatness, like hens, we are concerned about our place in the pecking order. And of course, it's human nature to prefer, to prefer to do the pecking than to be pecked. But Jesus, here in Luke 22, tenderly and persuasively is teaching us not to be chicken when it comes to real greatness. He's encouraging us to have the courage to be servants. So at this moment of Holy Week, we remember Jesus's integrity, his wholeness and holiness as the Son of Man and the Son of God, without sin, yet the one who is broken for our sins, as the beloved servant who is prophesied by Isaiah. And in the debate about greatness and in Jesus's corrective teaching, we also remember our own brokenness and unworthiness because we're more like the disciples than we know. And yet, with God's Holy Spirit, we can be true servants to one another. We opened our service with the Alexander Means hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This? Notice the lines of the second stanza. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, Christ laid aside his crown. What kind of king lays down or lays aside his crown? It's not a so-called benefactor king, but this one does. What wondrous love is this of, of God in Christ, who came to serve, not to be served, who came to die that we might live, who came to teach us what wondrous love looks like. Amen.